Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants, who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. And the second reading comes from 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, 3 to 12, which is on page 1021. Thanksgiving and prayer. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love of and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified, in his holy people, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace 
of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we are in our last week in our series called Gazing at God's Goodness, and we've looked at God's compassion, God's grace, God's patience, God's abounding love, God's faithfulness, God's forgiveness, and our last topic is God's justice, the God who is just. And I'm sure we've all said this phrase, it's not fair. It's not fair. So many things happen in our world and in our lives that are just not fair. You know, it's not fair that people are discriminated against or oppressed because of the color of their skin. That, that is not fair. It is not fair that just because you've had a good education means that you are more likely to, to succeed in life. That, that just doesn't seem fair. It's not fair that if you're born into the right family, a, a wealthy family, that you can use your money to have power and you can buy things and buy people. That is not fair. It's not fair that some people are born into poverty. Not their choice. They were born into poverty and they get stuck in this, this cycle of poverty that's so hard to get out of. That doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair to me that if you can afford to pay for private health insurance that you can get your surgery quicker. That doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair to me that we sit here in the compass of Kirribilli whilst there are kids across the globe who are being abused, trafficked, sexually exploited, so that perverts in this country could, uh, could fulfill their online fantasies. That doesn't seem fair. It's abhorrent. And if you never ask these kind of questions, can I suggest that you're living in a, a lower North Shore bubble because there are so many things in our world today that are just not fair. And that cry for justice, is, you learn it really, really early in life. And my kids at home, I've got five boys, and you know, I'm dishing out the ice cream and I give one kid a slightly larger scoop of ice cream and I say, Dad, that's not fair. Or, you know, the kids are in a bit of a fight, and I think that one of them's to blame, and so I discipline that child, but they say, it was him that started, it's not fair. Now, to be human, you have this, this inbuilt longing for justice, don't you? That's what it means to be human. Uh, as human beings created in the image of God, we have God's fingerprint on our soul. Uh, and if God is just, if God longs for justice, then so should we. Now, it, it is right, isn't it? it? It is right that war criminals are brought to justice. That's right. It is right that abusers are brought to justice. It is right that the, those women who were abused by Harvey Weinstein, that there was some justice there. Now, it's right that we fight to stop sex trafficking, isn't it? It's right that... Remember that case we heard about in the, in the news this week of that... That, that nurse in the UK who murdered all those babies in NICU, wasn't it right that there was some kind of punishment there? That, that longing for justice is, is a right longing. And, and when you have been wronged personally, 
when you've been harmed, when you've been hurt, when you've been, when you've been wounded, when somebody has abused you, it is right that you long for justice. When, when lies are being told about you, it is right that you long for the truth to be told. So that longing for justice is right, but th this is the problem. Because when we have done something wrong, when I've wronged a friend, when I've hurt a friend, I actually don't want justice. What I want is forgiveness and grace, a second chance. And that's the problem with this topic called justice, because we all say that we want justice, but when we're weighed on the scales and we're found wanting, we, we don't actually want justice, we want forgiveness, we want grace. Now, in, in the Scriptures, God defines himself as just. That's our last attribute from our verse of the term. Exodus 34, verse 6 is on the screen. He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the, the compassionate and gracious God, we love that bit, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, a beautiful verse, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. We love all that. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's his justice. He, he sees sin. He must punish sin. He will punish sin. That's his justice. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. We'll, we'll unpack that in a moment. So God's character... God's character, he is just. It's not that he, that he brings justice. His, his whole being is just. He is infinitely, eternally, unchangeably just. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, he is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And so God defines himself as always being fair and always being right and always being perfect in every judgment. And our problem is that we can't comprehend this because we don't have any human models of justice. Now, even the, the best, most fair high court judge in the entire globe, they still make mistakes. There's still miscarriages of justice. And God is saying, I am perfect, and I am right, and I am fair, and I will judge justly. A God who did not care about right and wrong, a God who never judged wickedness, a God who turned a blind eye to sin and just brushed sin under the carpet and pretended it didn't matter, he would not be a nice God. He'd be a monster. So God is just and he will judge justly. And can I say God's judgment is always a good thing, it's never an offensive thing. Uh, the problem, we, we live in this, this, this Western mindset, this Western culture where we tend to think that the word judgment is a very bad word. We don't like the idea of judgment. We, we love forgiveness, but we don't like judgment. And can I say that, that that's actually not true across most of the globe? Across most of the globe, what people struggle with most is forgiveness, not judgment. 
Because the, the majority of, of the population today are surrounded by violence and they're surrounded by abuse and they are victims of abuse. So when you live in that kind of culture day after day, what, what, the idea of judgment is a good thing. It's the idea of forgiveness, that, that God could forgive these barbaric people. That's the hard thing. So when you read judgment in the Bible, it's a good thing. It's not offensive. Someone said, there's, someone said this, a God without wrath is a God who whitewashes evil and is deaf to the cries of the powerless. A student of mine who grew up in a gang culture and had many whom he loved taken from him by violence told me with profound honesty that, quote, if God will not avenge, I'm, attempted to, I'm tempted to avenge. But precisely because God is a God of love, he's also a God of holy wrath, and he will judge justly. So that's our God. He is just. He's also gracious, compassionate, loving, and faithful, but he is just. Can I just say that God's grace does not eliminate his justice? Just because he's gracious doesn't stop him being just. The two can coexist. So imagine that you got pulled up for speeding. You, imagine you were speeding 30 kilometers over the speed limit, and, and a cop car pulls you over and stops you, and the, the, the justice thing is that you get fined. The justice thing is that you get a, a speeding ticket and you lose points off your license. That, that's the right thing. Now, if the cop said to you, you know what, I'll be gracious to you. I won't punish you, I will let you go. That's gracious, isn't it? But just because you've been gracious to you, it does not mean that every other speeder doesn't deserve to get a fine. That would be ridiculous. If there's never any punishment for wrongdoing, that would be ridiculous. So just because God has been gracious doesn't wipe out his justice. And just because God is loving doesn't eliminate his justice. Because people say to me, if God is all loving, then surely he could just forgive and accept everybody. I want to say, Really? Can you imagine if there was a human judge in a courtroom and th this human judge was, was all loving and every single criminal that stood in his courtroom, he just said, I love you, it's okay, doesn't really matter, off you go. Every murderer, every rapist, every child abuser, I, I don't think we were saying, oh, he's such, he's such an amazing judge, he's so loving and so kind. I think we'd be saying, no. There should be justice. There should be some kind of punishment. So God's love and God's judgment can coexist. I also want to say that justice does not eliminate consequences. Justice demands some consequences. That's the second half of Exodus 34 that we don't like. God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. And it seems to go from a sacred verse to a scary verse. Now, now we know that we're shaped by our parents. We, we know that we inherit our parents' you know, physical features or their mannerisms or their health issues, but, but, but does God really hold me accountable for the sins of my parents? Is that justice? Here's what this verse cannot mean. This verse cannot mean that my kids and my grandchildren 
will be punished for my sins. That's not just. You know, if God said to somebody, I'm punishing you for murder, and that person said, oh, but I've never murdered anybody. And they said, no, you haven't, but your grandfather did. That would be unjust. So he cannot mean that. And the Bible is very clear that we are all responsible for our sins and ours alone. We are accountable. We're given account for our sins, not somebody else's sins. So what on earth does this verse mean? The word punish is an unfortunate translation. It's too strong. Here's the literal translation. It's on the screen from the CSB. But God will not leave the guilty unpunished. He's just. Bring in the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren of the third and fourth generation. So he's not talking about punishment. He's not talking about wrath. He's talking about consequences. Because there's always consequences for wrongdoing. There's always consequences for sin. And those consequences are felt from one generation to the next, aren't they? You know that. And many children and grandchildren experience the consequences of their parents' choices. If your parents are alcoholics, you're impacted by that. If your parents had a problem with anger, that has shaped you. Sadly, many children perpetuate their parents' sin. The abused becomes the abusers. This is a really sobering thought that, that there are consequences for the choices that you make and the wrongdoings that you do, and it often passes down the generations. You know, as a parent, you know, the choices that I make will shape my kids. We do live in a generation, I think, where we're making very worldly choices. We're making worldly choices about how we spend our time, how we spend our money, the kind of friendships we make, the, the priority of gathering together as church. And we're making those choices, and, and if we then have kids, we, we pass on that to our kids, and they, they kind of normalize the, the wrong choices that we make. And this is not just a, a warning, it's actually a motivation. I want to make good choices to pass down to my kids and my grandkids. Because there are consequences to the third and the fourth generation. Now, he's not saying that the, that the fifth generation kind of get off the hook. He's just saying it's limited. And the comparison here is in the previous verse where he says that his love abounds to the thousandth generation. So he says God's love abounds to a thousand generations, but God's consequences is just to the third or the fourth. So church, I, I am not responsible for my parents' mistakes. But I do still bear the consequences. And for me, that is both hard and empowering. Because you know that I come from a dysfunctional family. My family background is one of abuse and alcoholism and lies and atheism. And sadly, that is the cycle that all of my other relatives got caught up in. But the moment I became a Christian, the moment the Spirit of God entered me, it's like God said to me, Paul, it stops with you. It stops with you, because you can break the cycle of alcoholism, and you can break the cycle of abuse, and you can break the cycle of lies, and you can break the cycle of atheism. I couldn't do it, but the Spirit of God could do that in me. 
Now, I'm the first generation, the first generation of Christian believers. And my prayer is that my kids and my grandchildren will not experience abuse or alcoholism or lies because we've broken that cycle. And you may be here today and your background might be one of that, that because of those behaviors that are not good. I want to say to you, it doesn't need to continue. It can stop. And it can stop through you. So God is just. Number two, God's cross. God's character is just. God's cross is just. God's justice is at the heart of the cross of Jesus Christ. We, we, we sing about it, you know, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This is justice. Justice demands that sin must be punished, but instead of me being punished, Christ was punished instead. That's justice. Justice must be executed against the guilty, but the the guilty one, that's me, walks free because the innocent one, that's Jesus, was punished. It is God's strange justice, but it's beautiful. I want us to sit with Romans 3 for a moment. It's on the screen. Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the problem. We've all sinned. I've sinned. You've sinned. From the day we were born, God knows every single word, thought, and deed. He's seen it all. Every time I said a careless word, every time I had a lustful thought, every time I got bitter and jealous, God knows it all. And we're all held accountable. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of a holy, just God. So I know I'm guilty, and you know I'm guilty, and I know that you're guilty. So we've all sinned. And justice demands that every sin, without exception, will be punished. There'll be a payday someday. And Romans 6, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. So that is the payment. We deserve death. So either I pay it or someone else pays it. And it seems unjust for somebody else to pay it unless that person who pays it is God himself. Look at the next verse. All are justified freely by his grace. Justified freely. Justified means to be declared not guilty, to be declared innocent. God says, in my sight, it's just as if you'd never sinned. How does that happen? By grace. If you ever go to London and you're on the London Eye, that's that big wheel thing, Ferris wheel. There's, there's a moment, about the 10 o'clock moment on the London Eye, where you've got this beautiful uh, two items on the London landscape, London skyline. Uh, the first thing you see is the Old Bailey, which is the courthouse. And on top of the Old Bailey is a, a statue of justice. This golden statue of justice. And, and in one hand, she's got some scales because she's going to weigh all the wrong that you've done and the right that you've done. In the left-hand side, she's got a sword because the sword's going to fall on those who are guilty. And it's this statue of justice. And then as, as the London Eye just moves slightly, just behind it is a, another monument. It's on St. Paul's Cathedral. It's a, it's a golden cross. And it's this beautiful moment where you are on the scales, you are weighed on the scales, and you're found guilty, and the sword deserves to fall on you, and then the cross comes into play, and you don't get the sword because Jesus got the sword instead of you. That's the cross. 
that he is punished so that you will not be. How does that happen? Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, says Paul, through the, the freedom that came through Jesus. You've been set free. The story of the two college friends, they were at university together, they were both lawyers, both studying law, best mates at college, but when they left university, they went on different paths in life. One went into the legal profession, one became a judge, a high court judge, and the other became a criminal. Drugs and armed robbery. And they hadn't seen each other for years until the day they met in the courtroom. One a judge and one in the dock. Two mates. Now justice demands that the judge gives a punishment, a sentence, and he did. But then the judge walks out of that courtroom, takes off his wig and greets his old long-lost mate and says, look, I, I know you've hit rock bottom. I know you can't pay this fine. Let me pay it for you. And the criminal said, well, wh what can I do? How can I pay you back? You don't need to pay me back. You can't pay me back. All I ask is that you go and live a different life. Go and change your life, transform your life. That's what redemption means. You've been bought back at a price, and all that God asks you is, is to live a different life. How did it happen? Keep reading. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. That's the propitiation word, the, the turning away the, of the wrath that our sins rightly deserve, that God's wrath has been satisfied. Because Jesus' death didn't just cover over your sins or wipe away your sins. Jesus' death is not a kind of disinfectant where it rubs out all that sin. The problem is not just your sin, but, the, but a just, holy, principled, controlled God. That needs to be dealt with. And at the cross, God's anger is turned away from you and onto Jesus. Now, why would God do that? Here's the big question. Why would God do that? Of course, he's out of love. But it's more than that. Paul says it's his justice. Look at the next verse. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's a complicated verse, but it's profound. What he's saying is that God will not let the guilty go unpunished. And you say, of course not. But then you read your Old Testament and think, well, he seems to. You know, Moses sinned, and he didn't seem to get a just punishment. And David sinned, and he didn't seem to get a just punishment. And they built that wretched golden calf, and they didn't seem to get a just punishment. Did God go soft on them? And this verse says, no, God did not go soft. He wasn't ignoring their sin. He was looking forward to the day of the cross when his wrath would be fully satisfied. He left all those sins unpunished not because of injustice on his part, but because he always intended to punish all the sins of the world in his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is justice. So there's no sin that's been swept under the carpet. There's no wrongdoing that hasn't been seen and noted by God. There's no horrors of history that has, that has, that's been ignored. God's just plan was always for Jesus to pay it all. And because he's paid it all, it would be unjust of God not to forgive us. John Stott says this, at the cross in holy love, God through Christ paid the full penalty of our disobedience himself. He took the judgment we deserve in order to bring us the forgiveness we do not deserve. 
On the cross, divine mercy and divine justice were equally expressed and eternally reconciled. God's holy love was satisfied. So that's God's justice. It's his character, it's the cross. Let me give you three points of application. Firstly, pursue justice now. It is right, my friends, to long for justice. Read the Psalms. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long will you let these wicked people prosper? How long will you let the innocent suffer? It's not wrong to cry out for justice. When you, when you see abuse, when you see harm, it is right as a Christian man or woman to cry out, Lord, act now, please, Lord. Is that part of your prayer life? Pleading with God for justice now? When you hear of 1.2 million refugees starving to death in Bangladesh right now, we should be crying out, please, Lord, do something. I don't want to live in a world where abusers go without justice. When the rich just keep on trampling on the poor and they're never held to account. I don't want to live in that kind of world. There is so much injustice. Psalm 10 is a great psalm to describe our world today. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages from ambush. He murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. That is a picture of millions of people across the world who are abused and they are victims of gross injustice. And Psalm 9 says, He who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. If that is true of my God, I want to get on my knees and plead God, please, please God, show your vengeance now. He's done it before. He can do it again. God judged the world for sin with the flood. God judged the arrogance of the world at the Tower of Babel. God judged the world with the flood. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God judged Ananias and Sapphira. He can judge us. And we should pray for that. We often don't pray for it, but we should. But what about when it's personal? What about when you have been treated wrongly? Do you ask God for justice? Do you ask God for your offenders to be brought to justice? We should. But here's the issue. Sometimes we're so fixated on getting the justice that we want our way in our timing. And if you're on this pursuit of justice your way, it can consume you and it can eat away at you. It can start to define you and you can start to leave God out of the picture. There are two verses that have been profoundly helpful for me when I have been wronged. Romans 12 says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave, God, leave room for God's wrath. If it's written, it's mine to avenge and I will repay, says the Lord. And in my experience, God is much better at, at avenging things than I ever am. Or oh, my favorite verse is from 1 Peter chapter 2 on this issue. 
He, he, that's Jesus. Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus was wronged, he did not retaliate. When Jesus was wronged, he entrusted himself into the hands of his heavenly Father who he knows judges justly. Because church, I need to say as your pastor, sometimes we do not get and we will not get the justice that we want right now. But please don't let it consume you. And please always remember that we don't always know all the facts. We're not God. We don't see everything. God sees everything. I love the story of the, the man who pulled up in his flashy sports car into this disabled spot outside this building. And his fit hunk of a man got out of the car and strutted into this building. And this nearby man was furious and outraged that this man had parked in this disabled spot. And he was so angry that he got this garbage. It was a sports car, an open-top sports car. He got this garbage, and he chucked this garbage into the car because he was so angry at this man. About three minutes later, this man walked out of that building carrying his profoundly disabled daughter. Now, let me ask you, who, who was wrong in that situation? The man in the disabled spot or the man chucking the garbage in? Because we don't know all the facts. Sometimes you can't see all the information. So sometimes when you're asking for justice, we're actually in the wrong. So you pursue it. Much more quickly, we're patient. Sometimes we will not see justice on this earth, but we've got to believe there will be justice on that last day. There's going to be a day called a day of judgment. It's called judgment day, when God will judge justly. We read about it, 2 Thessalonians 1, he will punish those who do not know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction. I know that we balk at the idea of hell, but it's a just thing. So pursue it, be patient, and lastly, practice justice. There are so many things in life that are not fair. But here's my challenge. We could do something about it. We shouldn't sit here tonight in Kirby and, and ponder this theme of justice and, and go home with notes on justice and ponder theology. We're actually called to do something. What does the Lord require of you? Micah 6, to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So church, to act justly means that we can play a part. We can play a part in stopping racial injustice. We can play a part in stopping economic injustice. We can play a part in stopping sex trafficking and abuse of children. We can play our part. We don't sit here and stuff our heads with theology. We're called to act. And an outworking of the gospel is pursuing justice for the abused and the marginalized and the orphans and the widow and the foreigners in distress. As Christians, we are called to do what is right and to give these people rights, to live righteously and to secure the rights of people who by their own ways have no rights at all. And that's why I love organizations like IJM, the International Justice Mission, fighting against slave trading and sex trafficking or compassion seeking to relieve kids from poverty in Jesus' name. 
So please don't just sit here and say, oh, that was a nice sermon on justice. Go out and pursue it and practice it because we're called to be the hands and feet that actually shine Christ into this world. And he is just. And we're called to be just like him. So let me pray. Father, I want to pray for those who are in our midst tonight, who have suffered, suffered at the hands of people, and for whom there has been no justice. And I invite you, Lord, to bring justice tonight. And I invite you, Lord, to right the wrongs. And Lord, I pray that we would, all of us, entrust ourselves to you, our God, who does judge justly. Lord, your timing is always perfect. Your ways are always right. And so we leave ourselves in your just hands. In Jesus' name.